Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to reducing hospital-acquired infections and readmission rates. More information on Pinnacle Health's achievements in patient safety can be found at pinnaclehealth.org quality. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. The unusually warm winter has resulted in an explosion of acorn production by oak trees. All of these extra acorns help keep mice fat throughout the winter, which resulted in large, healthy litters of mice in the spring. Extra mice mean extra tick larvae, and more ticks mean a greater risk of Lyme disease transmission. Pennsylvania leads the nation in reported cases of the bacterial infection, more than 7,300 confirmed cases in 2015. Lyme disease can be debilitating, and it can often be in question as to how long that, how long that, that actually lasts. Some say no more than three weeks, but others who have suffered for years say Lyme disease can be chronic. So these are some of the topics we'll discuss today with Lyme disease. Joining us in the program is uh, Dr. Lauren Robinson, Deputy Secretary of uh, Health Promotion and Disease Prevention at the Pennsylvania Department of Health. Dr. Robinson, welcome back to the program. Good morning, Scott. How are you? I'm doing well. Also, Dr. Chris Turnpaul. Dr. Turnpaul is uh, with Health and Wellness, uh, Turnpaul Health and Wellness, his own practice. Dr. Turnpaul, welcome to the program. Welcome. Thanks for having me. And and in our studio also, we have uh, two people who can talk about uh, Lyme disease from uh, a firsthand perspective. Uh, we have uh, Samantha Perry, who suffers the effects of Lyme disease. Ms. Perry, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. And her mother, Carrie Perry, is the Pennsylvania Ambassador for Project Lyme. You also probably recognize uh, Carrie Perry as uh, one of the hosts of Good Day PA on ABC 27. Carrie, a former WITF employee, <laughs> welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me. Dr. Robinson, I want to start with you. Uh, let's talk about Lyme disease in Pennsylvania. As you heard in the introduction, uh, Pennsylvania leads the nation in Lyme disease. Why? So the reason that we lead uh, the, the country in Lyme disease is really because we have uh, an amazing amount, an abundance of um, fresh green areas for the ticks to kind of reproduce and kind of lay around in. So we've got forests, we've got fields, we have uh, farms and ticks pretty much like all of these. Um, you know, whether it's around ponds or in, in thicker forest areas, um, because we have such a, a good and temperate climate as well, this is just the perfect place for ticks to kind of want to thrive. So what is the state of Pennsylvania, the Department of Health in particular, doing to try to uh, stop the spread of Lyme disease? So that is a great question, Scott, and we have we get questions all the time about what is the department doing to stop the spread of Lyme disease. So one of the challenge with, with, with Lyme disease and with ticks is that you can't really spray for ticks. So you hear things about something like Zika that has mosquitoes, and so we definitely have some spraying we can do for mosquitoes, but for ticks it's a little bit uh, harder, um, and we don't have any kind of monitoring or surveillance of ticks that we do as a Department of Health. Um, our goal as a department is really to educate the public about what Lyme disease is, um, how they get it, what to do if they get it, um, and try to prevent themselves from getting it. And so when we talk about health promotion or disease prevention, most of what we do as a department is, is around education. So what about the symptoms of Lyme disease? That's a great question also. So one of the challenges about Lyme disease is that the symptoms can range um, from almost anything. So you'll have people who will tell you, well, I had Lyme disease and I had no symptoms at all. Um, those, I would say, would be the lucky ones, but um, you can range from having no symptoms at all to having uh, slight body aches and, and headache to having very high fever to having uh, to go on to have long-term consequences of Lyme disease and have something like a seizure disorder that can be very, very hard to, to control. Um, there are people who have had reports of permanent brain damage. Um, so uh, it is something that is definitely not to be taken lightly. I think one of the challenges is that 
because the symptoms are so variable. Uh, when someone goes to see their doctor, their doctor might say, well, this doesn't sound like Lyme disease because the doctor has a very kind of narrow understanding about what those symptoms can be. Um, people will talk about a bullseye rash. Uh, and so that's when you think about people who are taking their medical boards or when you think about uh, Lyme disease, everyone looks for this bullseye rash, but it doesn't look like a bullseye in everyone. Some people have no rash at all. And so uh, it's really important to know that kind of almost anything can be Lyme disease. And so if you if you feel not well, you should be checked. If you find a tick on you and you have any type of symptoms, you should be checked. Um, and making sure that, that you're kind of trying to do what you can to prevent yourself from getting bitten in the first place. Dr. Chris Turnpaul, you are uh, have been identified as someone who is Lyme literate. Now, you heard uh, Dr. Robinson talking about the symptoms. What are some of the symptoms that you see on a daily basis and maybe some that, uh, as Dr. Robinson said, sometimes are misdiagnosed? Well, that's a great, great question, and I'd like to echo what she said. It can be really any symptom. So uh, patients come in with chronic, I don't feel good-itis. That's kind of the term that I use. And so we screen them all for Lyme disease. Uh, 2003, my wife lost her use of her arms and legs from Lyme disease, and they were told that that doesn't know how Lyme disease presents. So um, really have to screen for anything. Any, you know, We've had patients from severe uh, psychiatric disorders uh, testing positive for things like lupus, uh, which were really uh, as a consequence of Lyme disease. So it's not that it is everything, but it needs to be screened all the time for patients with chronic disease. And we're going to talk about screening. We're going to talk about some of the disagreements over diagnosis and treatment uh, throughout the program today. But uh, I want to bring in uh, Samantha Perry. Samantha, I know it is not polite to ask a young woman how old she is, but I will. I'll break that rule. I'll say right off the bat, I apologize. How old are you? I'm 18 years old. And you are you were a freshman at Penn State last year, right? Yes, I was. And uh, you're going back in the fall? Yes, I'm okay. going back in the fall. So from what I understand, this started with you when you were about 16, correct? Yeah, I was actually just shy of my 16th birthday when we traced back the time that I was most likely bitten. But it, the symptoms started when I was 16. So where do you live? You're in Cumberland County, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, wooded area? I mean, do you do a lot of hiking? Yeah, we have a beautiful backyard with trees, and and I do enjoy the outdoors. I've gone hiking and everything like that. Mm. Do you know exactly when you may have been uh, bitten and infected? We think we traced it back to one particular hike. It was in November, um, which was weird because— November of? Of— 2014. 2014. Yeah. Okay. Um, Which is weird because we were told that ticks weren't really out then, Mm -hmm. but... um, They're always out. They're always out. They're They're always always there. So when did you start noticing that you didn't feel well? Well, uh, in the beginning of December, I ended up having a week-long fever and um, headache, and they thought I had the flu, but I didn't test positive, and then it kind of resolved after a week. I missed like a week of school, but then I was fine, so we just thought, maybe it's a virus. Did you go to the doctor? I did. You did? Yeah, didn't get text- tested for Lyme, though. Mm-hmm. But what were, were, did you get a prescription or anything like that, medication? Nope, we just thought it was viral. Um, but it, but hindsight, we uh, realized that the initial symptoms for Lyme are usually flu-like, or can be flu-like symptoms. So that's what I had. So you just felt bad for a week or so. W- what happened after that? After that, um, I had been an all-year-round athlete. I was running track. I came off of a soccer season and um, an indoor track. I was lifting and really training very hard for the spring season. And I was having a lot of uh, joint pain and fatigue. I was never a napper, and I would come home from school and nap until 4 to 5 and wake up and eat dinner. So I was very tired, and it was unlike me. I thought I was maybe just overtraining. But it continued into the spring season. It was getting worse, and I was having some neurological issues as well. Like what? Um, I was having a weird aversion to food. I was getting kind of dizzy sometimes, things like that. So I ended up seeing um, my initial, uh, after a panel of blood work, I uh, the only thing that came back was a high RA. Um, RA? RA. Uh, it's usually a marker for um, rheumatoid arthritis. Mm-hmm. So I was sent to a rheumatologist. Um, I've seen three rheumatologists and one neurologist, and um, none of them really wanted to test me for Lyme. None of them kind of believed me very much. I've gotten um, that I was just too stressed, that I wasn't eating properly, that I was all in my head. So it was a long battle, um, six months until I got a diagnosis finally in June 2015. When you say that uh, none of the doctors wanted to... Uh, test you for Lyme disease, did you ask? 
Um, we mentioned it. I wasn't as uh, up, up, uh, forthright, I guess, about it. Uh, my mom was actually the one, the mama bear, that, that forced the testing. I kind of testing. can see that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she, um, she pushed for the testing, and we went to my family doctor, um, and and finally he was like, okay, we'll give you a test. Um, and I actually, it came back negative. So um, then that's why we continued seeking those rheumatologists and neurologists. And eventually, um, when we kind of were hitting dead ends, we went to, um, sent the test to Igenix, which is a lab in California. And it came back that I had two strains of Lyme. Two strains? I didn't realize there was more than one strain. Yeah, there's over 30. Oh, really? Well, mm-hmm. see that? Learned something already today. <laughs> so uh, how long did it take? First of all, let's ask about the treatment then. And uh, you, I assume that you were not feeling very well during this whole period either. No, I wasn't. I mean, I was still functioning uh, compared to how I was uh, in the last winter. Um, but it definitely wasn't. I wasn't myself anymore. I wasn't my active self, and something was definitely wrong. Yeah. Did you continue playing sports, or could you? I did, actually, yeah. I continued um, my senior year playing soccer in the fall. Um, my coach was very understanding, and I had to sit out for some practices and take it easy. Um, but I do remember one time in a playoff game, uh, it really hit me. My legs gave out because I was just pushing myself too hard, and I was too tired. And uh, that was, I think, the first time that it really set me back. So how eventually were you treated? I was put on antibiotics. I was on combinations of a couple uh, for 18 months. I did some supplements along with that, but I did, we tried, like, everything for 18 months. And what worked? And um, the antibiotics did not work after 18 months. Um, It was after my uh, first semester freshman year. I was just way over, overdid it. I was so tired. I was very, I was so sick coming back from school. I ended up having to take the second semester off, stay at home, and really focus on my health. I ended up uh, switching over to um, chiropractic care and uh, had a lot of um, more homeopathic um, treatments, and I did the hyperbaric oxygen chamber therapy. So that, I think, really got me unstuck. That's what really helped my healing process. I want to talk about all those things and caring. I want to bring you in in just a moment, but uh, since I have Dr. Robinson for only a few minutes, Dr. Robinson, one of the things I wanted to follow up on with uh, Samantha's story is that um, I don't don't know whether her story is typical or not, but it appears as though there is some question, there is some controversy about, uh, you know, whether the medical community actually recognizes that there can be some long-term impacts of Lyme disease. That's a, actually a really nice way of putting it, Scott. So I, there's, I there's, try to be nice. <laughs> well, I think there's two. There, I think there are two major controversies. Um, there, in the medical community, there are there's a there's a split between um, uh, people who talk about kind of Lyme disease as something you get, you treat with antibiotics for three weeks, and then it's over. Um, and then what people call chronic Lyme disease. So you will have doctors who say there's definitely no such thing as chronic Lyme disease. If you give a patient three weeks of antibiotics, once you treat them, that should be it, and that's fine. Um, Unfortunately, we know that um, there's a growing body of evidence that that might not necessarily be true. Um, And so we've got folks who have had chronic Lyme who will test positive for a longer time after they're treated. You've got folks who have had all the symptoms of of Lyme disease and for whatever reason don't ever test positive um, because the test we have for Lyme disease that was developed, you know, back in the 70s or 80s, we need a newer, a better test for Lyme disease. Um, And so there's definitely controversy about uh, Lyme disease versus chronic Lyme. Um, And then the other issue that there's um, controversy around is around treatment. So, um, you know, whether you, you know, as a Department of Health, we say, if you have these symptoms, definitely go be tested, first of all. And secondly, you know, your treatment decision about what antibiotics are right for you or, or if antibiotics are right for you really should be between you and your doctor. Um, and, you know, it depends on if you're seeing your, your primary doctor or a Lyme literate doctor. Um, but there are disagreements about what, what treatment for Lyme disease should be. So you've got some doctors who say, you know, three weeks of antibiotics, that's it, and I'm not giving you any more. And then you've got some folks who are like, well, I, on my, in my practice when I've seen patients, 
You know, I see people get better if they do long-term IV antibiotics. Um, I've seen people who take long-term oral antibiotics. I've seen people who get diagnosed with Lyme disease and never take an antibiotic a day in their life and only do um, homeopathic or natural supplements. And so there is that variation, and you do have to find uh, a doctor that you're a good fit with and who's actually listening to you um, and someone who can kind of look at everything that's going on in your life, know what tests to run, and, and offer you the treatment that's appropriate for your condition. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by the Pinnacle Health Cardiovascular Institute's team of cardiologists, surgeons, nurses, physicians' assistants, and rehabilitation specialists, delivering a broad range of traditional and highly specialized procedures. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're talking about Lyme disease here in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania leads the nation in the number of diagnosed Lyme disease cases. And uh, we want to hear your your stories as well. I know there are a lot of people out there who uh, maybe have questions about Lyme disease, maybe have gone through the experience, maybe still suffering with Lyme disease. Give us a call. 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call. You can send an email to smarttalk at org. You can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page or on Twitter. We are at Smart Talk WITF. Our guest today, Samantha Perry, just heard her story about uh, the impact of Lyme disease on her life over the past two years or so. Her mother, Carrie Perry, who we'll be speaking to in just a moment, Pennsylvania Ambassador for Project Lyme, Dr. Chris Turnpaul with uh, Turnpaul Health and Wellness, and Dr. Lauren Robinson, Deputy Secretary for Health Promotion and Disease, Disease Prevention at the Pennsylvania Department of Health. It's Monday morning. My mouth is not working correctly at this point. 1-800-729-7532. Carrie, we've known each other for a long time and uh, seen you on television over the years. Know you have a very forceful personality. (laughs) So it didn't surprise me when uh, your daughter, Samantha, said that your mom really pressed for this. Tell me about it from your observations as a parent going back to 2014 with Sam. Well, I watched Sam decline in a way that was just really, you know, heart-wrenching for a parent. She was an incredibly thriving athlete, academic, always on the go. You're pre-med, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And the, when she talks about I had that headache, the neck ache, the fever, even I was thought, you know, it's a virus. We're coming into, you know, Christmas holidays. Everybody's sick. And it really wasn't until um, we started prying a little bit more when she was coming to me saying, Mom, I'm exhausted. Like She couldn't go to a track meet. And I took her in to get blood work done at the family doctor. Uh, again, Lyme was not on my radar at all. And when those tests came back and they said the RA factor, high RA factor, again, I was in the dark about it. Um, I did what every parent would do. I just keep pushing every step, every step. But at one point, there there came a time when I just felt like she wasn't being listened to. Um, she's very intelligent. And at that age of 16, she was very in tune to what her body felt like, how it normally operated. And she was really great at articulating. And she just wasn't being listened to. And every month, there was just this steady decline. So... Um, well, let me interrupt you for right. a second. When you say she wasn't being listened to, that was your observation. In what way? Describe so that. the way that she would present with, um, you know, the aches and pains and, and things like that, um, the rheumatologist would just say, you know, they make the person feel kind of bad. You know, I have to say, oh, well, you are doing too much. You haven't done X, Y, and Z. You need to eat better. It's the onus is back on the, the patient, the person coming for the help. Same thing happened when we went to the neurologist. Um, you know, Sam eats well. She takes great care of her body. And yet they, I get a call the next day saying, we really should have her seen at an adolescent eating disorder clinic. Hmm. That's not so nice. Um, I was starting to have more conversations with people around me who, you know, they were noticing Sam not doing well because they were parents of the track kids and whatever. And I had one parent who just said to me, I think you need to push harder for Lyme disease. I said, well, I did get her tested. It came out negative. She said, doesn't matter. A friend of mine had a negative test, went on to definitely have Lyme, used a lab that's out in California, Igenix, and that's how they found out. So... When we um, got to Turnpaul Health and Wellness and were finally in with people who were listening and looking at her, uh, the test that came back positive 
the she, as Sam said, two strains of lime. We, again, two strains of lime. Um, and that really, Scott, was when I started really digging deep with what was going on because it then became sort of like a, a we got to figure out what we need to do to get this kid better. And the doctors there were really great. Everybody was working together. But it was me putting my face in a book, listening to other doctors, asking questions because um, it, it was just so convoluted, everything with this disease. Mm-hmm. Dr. Trumpal, let's take this kind of one by one. Um, Carrie just mentioned she thought that Sam was not being listened to. Uh, You said to me early in the program about the uh, doctors need to listen. I think Dr. Robinson said the same thing, that doctors uh, need to listen to their patients. Why doesn't that happen in this case sometimes? And I want to say sometimes because not always. Right. Well, I, th- I think, first of all, I think doctors have the best intent. You know, they're, they're altruistic. They want to do the right thing. But they get um, sometimes caught up in their specialty. So, for example, a rheumatologist is looking for, in this case, she has a positive rheumatoid factor, so there's your problem. And and so instead of saying what else could cause this or what else is going on, and a neurologist is looking for a neurologic uh, condition as opposed to looking at what could have been the trigger, what's the root cause of this. And so, and listening also what's not working as well as what is working. So that's a very important point. When, when somebody does, it's like, well, this should work, but it's not. Well, then maybe we need to rethink how we got to this point. So, uh, and, and again, we live in you know, the, 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 the bullseye of Lyme disease. So if somebody comes in with weird multi-system, multi-symptom issues, it really should be screened and it should be screened more than once in many different ways. So I think when the doctors, uh, whomever they see, are, are they're very competent doctors. They're very smart doctors. They didn't get where they were, but you know, because they got their degree out of a crackerjack box. So, but just becoming more aware. And I think you know, Dr. Robinson hit hit it on the head when she said. It's awareness. It's just awareness. You know, when you went through medical school years ago, there wasn't this level of awareness. And so um, we get so focused in our careers and what we do that sometimes new information is difficult to come by. Um, And it's difficult to treat. It's also not a straightforward, you have Lyme disease, this is what you do. It's not strep throat. Strep throat, this is what you do, it's better. It's more of a, a difficult working diagnosis. It takes more time, more understanding. Uh, a lot of outside-the-box thinking, and so that makes it a difficult animal to handle. Dr. Robinson, I know you have to run here in uh, just a minute. I don't know what kind of meeting would be so important you have to miss the last half hour smart talk, but, hey, that's just me. Uh, anyway, uh, what Dr. Turnbaugh has said, it, it sounds like we do need to, the docs need to listen a little closer to patients. I think they definitely do, and I agree with Dr. Turnbull. And I think the other Turnbull, and I think the other issue is, you know, Pennsylvania leads uh, the, the nation in Lyme disease cases. So every doctor, every nurse, every PA, every person who's seeing a patient who's coming in and saying, "I don't feel well," you should keep Lyme disease on your differential, no matter what. You know, I, I trained in North Carolina, and in North Carolina we didn't see a ton of Lyme disease, but we did see a ton of Rocky Mountain spe- spotted fever. And so when a patient came in over the summertime and didn't feel well, every doctor knew you've got to keep this on the top of your list. And I think if we could just get doctors in Pennsylvania to keep this at the top of their, of their list or at the forefront of their brain as they're hearing from patients, um, I think that starts to turn the tide of, of, of really getting a handle on this and making sure that we're, we're taking this as seriously as it should be. Does the Department of Health have an official stance on this, an official position? So, you know, our, our official position is really just about education and, and awareness. Um, and getting, you know, docs out there to, to know what resources they can refer people to. You know, on our website, people can learn what Lyme disease is and, and, how, and look at the state's rates of Lyme disease over the past two years. When it comes time for, for testing or treatment, we defer that to uh, really to the experts, to the docs who are out there seeing the patients. Dr. Lauren Robinson is the Deputy Secretary for Health Promotion, Disease Prevention at the Pennsylvania Department of Health. Dr. Robinson, always fun having you on the program. Great. Thanks so much. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Uh, so, Dr. Trumpal, one of the things I did want to mention, uh, Dr. Robinson brought it up, and you touched on it as well, and that is uh, the test that we really don't have. It, am I stating that correctly by saying we really don't have a good test for Lyme? It sounds as if we get a lot of negatives 
Sam is an example of that, negatives when Lyme actually exists. Well, let me, let me kind of open the field up a little bit there. So when I say Lyme disease, I should more uh, correctly say tick-borne illness because okay. tick-borne illnesses, there's Bartonella, there's Borrelia, there's Ehrlichia. There's many, many illnesses that are traveled uh, travel with ticks. So we say tick-borne illness, and, and you can be screened for any of them because, as you mentioned ab- about the, the acorns and the mice, and the, mm-hmm. the, the, so the ticks are higher. So the tick-borne illnesses are higher. So, for example, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, like she said, which can happen in North Carolina and anywhere, uh, we want to screen for all of the tick-borne illnesses. And, and many times uh, it's, a, it's, it's a mistake to say, and I've seen it, uh, we see it every week. We diagnose at least four cases of active Lyme disease every week in our office. And so, um, and not because we're a Lyme clinic, because people are coming in with, I don't feel good problems. And so when they say, well, I've, t- I've been tested for Lyme, so therefore I don't have it. I think that's a mistake to know that there's false negatives out there many, many times. And the testing that was done was not in depth. And the breadth of the testing did not include all the other tick-borne illnesses. And I think that there's a, there's a lot of false negatives as well as an incomplete test which didn't test all the tick-borne illnesses. Carrie, as you were doing your research, you said uh, you had your face in a book. I'm also sure that you went online uh, where you can get a lot of good information but also a lot of bad information. But uh, as you were trying to find out what was was wrong with Sam, what were some of the things that, uh, you know, some of the possibilities other than Lyme? Well, she was tested for lupus. There was Shrosian's, Hashimoto's. There are all these autoimmune disorders um, that she was tested for. And if you look at those independently, she did present in certain ways. And so I understood that that makes sense. Uh, but when you look at Lyme, and just as Dr. Robinson said, there is just a massive amount of symptoms that make it so difficult, I think, because it could be this, it could be that. And I also want to say there is another level to this. When somebody says, oh, I had Lyme disease, well, that could be the person who got the bullseye, they saw the tick, whatever. They get kind the, of a typical. Typical. And then yeah. there's the person like uh, my daughter who, in what I would say, she is now in post-treatment chronic Lyme. She's been through the regimen of the treatment that was um, stated, even what the CDC might say for the you know doxycycline, and she's gone through that, but her symptoms never resolved, and so she moved into a chronic state because everything else now was in trouble because her immune system was in the tank. So there's so many different levels. And really, Scott, as we were going along and she would be taking her antibiotics and taking the supplements and some other things and one issue would resolve and another issue would pop up. So um, me looking around and searching for answers was also based on how are you doing this month? How are you doing today? What is going on? Because it's ever changing. And in fact, she did a journal. I asked her to do it, just a very simple journal and write down how she was sort of feeling and what she was experiencing. And it was really interesting that on a monthly basis, it was a roller coaster because, you know, three o'clock in the afternoon, she'd have a 99.9 temperature for a period of time and then it would go away. But it was always cyclical. So, um, yeah, there are so many different things that are going on that, that make it difficult to diagnose and to continue to treat in a way. And like Dr. Turnpaul was saying, now you got to look at things by looking at the, the patient and saying, okay, well, that didn't work. Now let's move on to this. That's what this disease becomes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Trumpel, let me ask you for a definition, if I could. Uh, you've used the term uh, chronic uh, Lyme disease. That is something that the Centers for Disease Control doesn't exactly subscribe to. What is chronic Lyme? Well, let's talk a little bit. I don't want to get too technical, but let's the the, the spirochete or this little corkscrew-looking thing is the infection. Upon giving it an antibiotic, it goes into like a blastocyst or, or a different form, which now the antibiotic is re, it resists the antibiotic, and then after that, it goes into a biofilm. So it kind of goes into a little hut and hides for an opportunistic time to come out. So it's interesting, uh, this whole chronic Lyme, or, or, or uh, there's an entire wing at Johns Hopkins now, which is dedicated just to this. And, and years ago, it was considered that, in fact, the CDC put out a statement that said there is no such thing as chronic Lyme. A doctor from Johns Hopkins battled that, had the backing of Johns Hopkins, went against NIH and CDC, and proved that there actually is chronic Lyme. So now we know unequivocally that there is proof that there's chronic Lyme because the actual bug goes in different states, which is now able to be seen, so we know proof positive that it's there. 
Uh, and it, it, the difficulty is in the state where it's a little corkscrew-looking thing, it will respond to an antibiotic. But when it changes its form and shape, it won't respond to the antibiotics as well. So, um, And then it can go dormant. Uh, and the best example I share with patients is, you know, when you got chicken pox, you got chicken pox. And then when you get older, you got shingles. It's the same thing, but it just went dormant for many years. And so um, that's kind of the the chronic Lyme. And one of the best things you can do is just get your whole body working better so we don't get shingles and we're healthy. We get it warm, immune compromised and stressed. When the body can't recover because it's suffering from Lyme, it can come out in many different forms. So I think the big thing is it changes its shape and its form based on how it's being treated. And we know this now, uh, the scientific literature supports that. There has been controversy over the years, though. Um, i I, I remembered producing a television show on Lyme disease probably 10 years ago uh, where there were a lot of people who contacted us and said, yeah, well, I, I have those symptoms, and, you know, my doctor said this, I don't have Lyme, that it's something else. Uh, I actually got emails from other doctors the day after the program saying you did a disservice to, to your viewers. My observation has been that, just as Dr. Robinson said, that thinking has changed somewhat, but still it is not universally uh, agreed to. And let me just read you something from the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control. They say that the disease is curable. The National Institutes of Health, the American Academy of Neurology, the American College of Physicians, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and the Infectious Diseases Society of America all, all agree. Even if symptoms linger after treatment with antibiotics, the bacteria goes away, and studies have repeatedly shown that continued long-term antibiotic therapy does nothing to alleviate symptoms, the most recent published in the New England Journal of Medicine last year. First of all, uh, I agree with part of that and disagree with part of that. So I, I, the, the bottom half of that is long-term antibiotics do not seem to be effective. Agreed. For the statement that I said earlier, the, the, the form of the disease changes and now it becomes not, not uh, affected by the antibiotics. Uh, that information is actually outdated because uh, you don't have to take my word for it. Take that little-known institute, uh, ranks number one in the world in infectious disease, Johns Hopkins. <laughs> they have an entire wing dedicated to it now because they have this they have uncovered the chronic Lyme. So what was stated before is you got the disease, it did damage, the damage is permanent, but you don't have an active infection. And we just know that that's not true. It's been supported in the literature, the scientific literature, which states that it is an ongoing. But it will. the key to that is it's not always taking more antibiotics, which case in point, I had a patient coming in to see me who had been taking antibiotics for 23 years and still suffering. And they recommended another year of antibiotics, and they asked my opinion. I said, well, if you didn't kill it in 23 years, you're probably not going to kill it in 24. So the, the answer is, how do we take a different approach to the ongoing active disease as opposed to just throwing the same thing out and expecting a different result? So I, I agree. Long-term continuous antibiotic use can compromise the immune system, which can allow other things to wreak havoc in your body. So I'm not an advocate to just blindly take antibiotics for the rest of your life. But I think it, I also know it's a disservice to patients to say your symptoms are just, they are what they are, tough, go live with it. Uh, because we've seen the other side. We've seen people come out the other side. As this girl sitting next to me, it wasn't gotten better from continuous antibiotic use uh, through other treatments. And I think that's where we have to recognize that maybe we don't know everything and we need to listen to our patients. And when they say, I still have symptoms and the antibiotics aren't working, what else can we do as opposed to, you don't fit in my model, so therefore you're crazy? Mm. Let's take some phone calls. Adair is in Gettysburg. Adair, you're on the air. Good morning, and thank you for the conversation. Yes, thank you. Um, I just want to mention, last year my husband got a tick bite, and we uh, we did not realize, I mean, we did not realize that his symptoms two months after that uh, he was tested for flu, and, all, and and he did get the Lyme test, which came back negative, and he was very, very sick. And we fortunately found uh, a Lyme specialist, Tim Stonetyper, who you had on your show a while ago. Yes, I remember Tim. And we, we sent, he sent the test out to that uh, place in Southern California, and my husband actually was positive for Babesia, which is another tick-borne illness. And then he was treated. I mean, my husband was very sick. And so he, he uh, was treated with antibiotics and whatnot for at least nine months. And he's feeling better now. But my point is, is that test is very expensive, and it's all out of pocket. 
And so the initial test, again, comes back negative, and you go to your doctor, and they say, well, you don't have Lyme. You have to find a specialist, and then you get the test, and the test is very expensive. So I think that is a is a impediment to people getting appropriate treatment. Adair, thank you very much for your call because you do bring up an issue. Uh, Dr. Turnpaul, what about insurance? Uh, is it accepted uh, for some of the treatments? Uh, what about the diagnosis, the blood test, all that? So some of the, the, the cursory or, or initial screening tests are covered, but they're not as accurate. So when you have to step outside the box and go to the the next tier of testing. There are, there are some labs that are coming around. There are some specialty labs that are coming around. Um, the Igenix lab that was talked about, uh, they don't take insurance, and it's not super cheap. And, and again, everything has to be tested. As she pointed out, it was a tick-borne illness that wasn't Lyme disease, so that's an additional expense. So you're looking at hundreds of dollars worth of testing, uh, and it is unfortunate. So what we do is we try and do as much as we can inside the box with insurance. and then. But if the patient's suffering, we owe it to the patient to figure out what's going on. And so we'll go to those uh, different labs. So sometimes it's very covered by insurance if we catch it early and, and easily. Unfortunately, when it becomes, it go, it's more difficult the length of time that it's gone on. So by the time they come to see us in our office, they've usually seen several other doctors. And so now it has to many times has to go to the next level of testing. And unfortunately, it is cost prohibitive. Uh, now, there are docs out there that will test or treat based on symptoms alone, and they won't do the testing. But it, it's a little bit, you know, I like to have data points, and sometimes you, you don't always have those data points. And Dr. Stonecipher is a great doctor for Lyme disease because he's willing to go the extra mile for his patients and run those tests, where other doctors would say the test isn't valid because they're not in the insurance model. Well, we can't wait for the insurance model to catch up with our health. Carrie, how much money did you put out? <laughs> uh, I was just—I I was feeling her pain um, <laughs> because, really, the amount of money that we put out was when we went off of antibiotics. That's when it really kicked in. Because yes, we paid the three fifty, I believe it was, for Igenix. And by the way, Samantha also tested with babesiosis, so that was another level of treatment. Um, when we were within the the frame of you can do antibiotics and you know that type of thing, that was covered. When we moved into supplemental care, the the supplements that per were provided. Yes, we did have to pay out of pocket for that. Um, with Sam then going full force into off antibiotics and onto other forms of treatment, that's when it became really expensive. So that was this part of the year, and that was hyperbaric oxygen therapy. So I would say for <clears throat> for that bit of treatment, we spent um, around $7,500 in two months, just that. Um, supplements are going to cost anywhere between 250 and 400 a month. And then you have office visit. Then you also have on top of that um, any other, she does continued chiropractic care, or she'll do massages um, to really help work out the toxins. So, of course, none of this is covered. And, yes, it's a lot of money. I would think that... Uh there would be a financial incentive for patients to want to stay on antibiotics because most of the time antibiotics are covered by insurance. Yes and no. In our case, and Dr. Turnpaul can speak to this, you can't just rely on an antibiotic. It, it is a whole big combination of things. Now, antibiotics, when you have strep throat or you have something else, that's fine, like he mentioned earlier. But when you're talking about Lyme and how it affects the body so pervasively, you really have to start looking at your diet and how well you eat and cutting out a whole lot of things, adding in expensive foods. And then you're looking at you know these alternative therapies. So you could say to a person, sure, you can just do the antibiotics. But if you get later in this, this Lyme disease, like Sam was, you can't just rely on that. So while that is the cheap part of it, air quotes, um, you're still not out of the woods in terms of spending money. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're talking about Lyme disease here in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania leads the nation in the number of diagnosed cases of Lyme disease. Our guest today, Dr. Chris Turnpaul of Turnpaul Health and Wellness, Samantha Perry, who suffers the effects of Lyme disease, her mother, Carrie Perry, Pennsylvania ambassador for Project Lyme. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Starting to get a lot of phone calls now, so let's try to get in as many as we can. Aaron Aaron is in Lancaster. Aaron, you're on the air. Hi, how are you today? I'm doing well. 
Hey, I have a, a few questions. I, I realize that the primary focus of your discussion is uh, the effects of Lyme on humans, um, but as an outdoors person and a dog lover, I'm curious as to what the professional opinion is with this group as to how to best deal with getting your dog diagnosed. I uh, recently had a family member who had a dog that was diagnosed with Lyme, but it took a long time for, for that to actually come to fruition. And secondly, how do we best protect ourselves while we're outdoors? Is there uh, something we can spray on that, that helps deter them, or is it primarily just finding them once they're on you? Well, I'll tell you what, uh, you have covered about uh, five different questions I had. Thank you very much for your recall. <laughs> Carrie, we'll talk about uh, prevention in just a moment, but I want to read a, an email that is related to uh, what he just asked. Uh, she says, uh, this is Sabina, says, I was diagnosed with Lyme disease. I was among the lucky folks, but I was diagnosed early because of my dog. She was limping one day, one paw, second day after another paw, and so forth for over a week. So being confused we went to the vet. It was called ghost pawing and a classic sign of Lyme in dogs. Vet put her on medication. I went to the doctor as I had a bite mark, itchy, but not bullseye. I was tested positive. Went on medication. Still to this day, no serious consequences. She says she was very, she was very lucky. Uh, we do know that, I mean, I've heard many cases, many uh, stories about uh, dogs and pets that uh, have been infected with Lyme disease as well. Uh, it sounds like uh, this listener was very lucky in that uh, she recognized the symptoms in her dog. Well, very fortunate. And, you know, one of the things that we say as part of our education is if your dog or animal has been tested positive for Lyme, the entire family needs to get tested because we see it in families. So, uh, you know, your dog didn't go out by itself and it was in the same environment which you were in. So you're in the same environment the dog was in. There is some controversy yet, ironically, much less in the veterinary uh, world. So they're much more apt to treat and test for Lyme disease. The testing is actually more effective in dogs and animals than it is in humans. So they're actually ahead of the curve. We can learn a little bit from them. They're more willing to treat. Um, the, the, they're more willing to look outside the box because it's inside their box. And then the, the advice I would have is just like this uh, woman did is if, if your animal is tested positive, you need to be tested yourself. Mm -hmm. And as far as prevention, I'll turn Carrie, that over. Yeah. what about prevention? This is my wheelhouse, Scott. Here we go. <laughs> <clears throat> so a couple of things. Um, we have animals. We have dogs. And one of our dogs um, did have complications from Lyme disease. So we lost our, our dog from that. What I do now in our family is I have a toolbox is what I like to call it. And um, I have um, my dogs are on revolution and you can go to, you know, your vet and talk to whatever, you know, they, they say, but your dog should definitely be on a preventative, but that will keep the dog from getting sick. It doesn't mean that the ticks don't, you know, come into your house once they're on your dog. So uh, one of the things that we like to do is I have a product. It's organic. Um, you can shop around other ones. Mine is called TikTok. It's a natural um, product that I can actually put on the dogs when we're outside. So right around the collar area, a little bit down the back of the neck. Um, if I'm concerned about them bringing a tick in. But in my yard, uh, we actually do spray. I'm not in need of the organic sprays. I'm just not. I actually just want to make sure that in, in our area, because we're right up against a wooded lot, that we use a product that will ensure that we don't have um, ticks and all the you know other stuff. So we use those things on our yard. That helps with your pets as well. Um, there are companies that provide fabric care, meaning either clothing or hats, other things that have permethrin on them. Um, permethrin ticks and even mosquitoes, so or even with Zika virus, um, it will prevent them from getting onto you. So you can either buy clothing. There's a company called Insect Shield. Dot com, And you could go on there and look. They have an incredible product line, but they also will allow you to, um, even if it's like your dog vest or something mm -hmm. that, you know, you put on your animal when you hike, um, but on yourself, you can actually ship some clothing to them. And it's a it's a very inexpensive way for them to treat your clothing with the, prevent, with the prevention of permethrin. That way, if you're very outdoorsy, you can go take care of that. I always say that on your skin, you should try to do more of an organic product, but the CDC will say that DEET is still okay. So products like off are good, but make sure that you start from the feet up and you are always putting it on your shoes, your socks, really heavily on the cuffs of your pant legs, things like that. When you come inside, before you tramps around your house, before your dog goes around the house, make sure you do your tick checks. Take off the clothing, that outside exterior clothing that you had, and throw it in the dryer first for 10 minutes on high heat. 
10 minutes on high heat. And then um, you want to make sure that you just really get your fingers through your hair on your scalp. Go through it that way. Sorry, hit the mic. And mm. then um, just look things over. I One of those sticky tape um, type rollers, mm-hmm. um, you can use those on your body too. Those things are really great first lines of defense before you're bringing it into your home or any other area where you could bring a tick in in an environment you don't want them there. Couple quick questions, uh, Dr. Turnpaul. If someone has been bitten by a tick, does that automatically mean they are getting Lyme disease? Uh, no, it doesn't automatically. So one of the things I say is, is Lyme disease is not the cause of all problems in the world, uh, but <laughs> a lot of them. <laughs> but a lot of them. So <laughs> th- there are there are doctors out there that'll say that every th- you know the reason there's no peace in the Middle East is because of Lyme disease. And so I mean, I, I, so I, I don't want to be that. So every time you're bit by a tick, no. But I think it's it's warranted if somebody says, "Listen, I found a tick. It was embedded in my body. Should I do a, a uh, proactive antibiotic?" I say yes. I say yes. And I also understand that uh, even if there is a tick that is infected, it doesn't necessarily mean that the disease will be, or excuse me, that the infection will spread. But the longer a tick is on the body, the more chances, correct? Well, first of all, let's let's address some of the misnomers. Some of the misnomers say the tick has to be on your body for 48 hours. We know okay. that we know that it has been seen transmitted in less than 15 minutes. So don't think that oh, I got it off because I just came inside. 15 minutes, we've seen the transmission. So the other thing is, you can if you save the tick, you can have the tick tested for it. Um, the best defense is always. A healthy immune system. So let me start with that. So if we see a family of 12 and half of them have Lyme disease and half of them don't, it's probably a pretty safe bet that the half that don't have been exposed but were able to fight it. So a healthy immune system is the best defense we can have. Um, but if if you find a tick and it's infected and it bit you, I would treat. Let's take some phone calls. Uh, Corey is in Lancaster. Corey, you're on the air. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. Um, my question is about a uh, possible vaccine and the future of uh, a vaccine. Um, about 20 years ago, um, I had received a vaccination for Lyme disease. At that point, it was new to the market, um, and I, mean, I guess it wasn't experimental, but it was new. It was subsequently pulled due to some like side effect scares and, uh, as far as I've read, low demand. Um, Demand is way up. So I'm wondering about the future of vaccination and uh, how effective that vaccine could be given possibility of like multiple strains. Corey, thank you very much for your question. Vaccine? Well, the question of the vaccine, the reason it was pulled is because the company actually lied about their results. Ah. So, so <laughs> it, was pulled, it. it was pulled because of falsification of information and, and the effects it was having, the, the negative effects it was having on, on patients. Um, so the, the one of the difficult issues with a vaccine is this rolling form of the disease and how differently it prevent, uh, presents in so many different cases. So it would be, you know, analogous to, we know the flu vaccine has to try and cover, say, 150 different strains and so so most of the time it's not the right strain and we're looking for the same would be true with Lyme disease it, it's a constantly varying and rolling type of uh, uh, presentation when it goes from again that corkscrew form to the blastus form and there's different strains you'd have to have one for all the tick-borne illnesses and it, w- it would be a difficult uh, vaccine to develop but they, they are looking for it because of the prevalence uh, everybody in the research community is on this because this is one of the if not the biggest, one of the biggest issues of our time in the States. Tim is in Carlisle. Tim, you're on the air. Hi, thank you very much for taking my call. Yes, uh, quick question. It just seems that there's so much categorical just opposition to Lyme disease within the majority of the medical community. I'm just looking for historical context. Why is that? Why is this Why is this not talked about more within the medical community as something that's possible? It seems that it's Lyme disease and tick-borne illness is one of the last things that's tested for most of the time. Thank yeah. you very much for your call. Well, real quick, let's, let's recant. I don't want to spend a dissertation on this, but in, in Lyme, Connecticut, right outside of Mystic, Connecticut, you know, there was a group of young children playing in the woods who presented with this juvenile rheumatoid arthritis thing. And so we're really good at naming and categorizing things, like a bunch of your joints hurt and they swell up. 
we'll call that arthritis, a specific type, rheumatoid arthritis. You have a, an issue where you have, uh, you know, uh, something else, we'll call it something else. So categorizing things we're very good at in the medical field. Uh, understanding the underlying mechanism we're not that great at. And so um, we see a presentation of symptoms, and then we have to go to the underlying mechanism, and, and we don't often go there. We tend to treat the symptoms very well. And so um, it's opposed because it's not a Here's the test. It's like a throat swab for, for uh, strep throat. You see it. It's positive. And, and it's, not the, it's not black and white with Lyme disease. Let's take another call from Dot. And uh, she's in Kramer. Dot, you're on the air. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, you such a wonderful program. Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to make a comment. I do have Lyme's, and last year I had an occurrence of it. And I was put on a regimen of 30 days of doxycycline, which worked very well. Uh, I was also, this year I had two ticks on me, uh, had symptoms, was put on the doxy again. And I know they were talking about antibiotics, uh, but this year when I was put on doxy after, I would say it was either the fifth or sixth day of doxycycline, I had a severe allergic reaction. So to me, you know, it would, it, it seems like our best approach would be holistic exercise, uh, nutrition. And, you know, I'd like to find out more about that and where I'd be able to do that at. Thank you very much for your call. Doctor. Well, I would uh, echo that. We see that quite a bit in our office, and that's why, as, as Carrie was saying earlier, we, we take a holistic approach because, you know, doing the same thing over and over again and not getting results is, is insanity. So in that situation, we would look and say, well, what's best for you? What's working best for you? And every patient that comes and sees me or are any of the doctors in our office is screened for overall wellness. So the best thing to do is get them optimally well, get their immune systems working the best. We'll look at diet. We'll look at exercise. We'll look at any alternative therapies as well as uh, allopathic therapies. And and Carrie can speak on, on that. Well, we only oh. have about a minute oh. left. And okay. Carrie, I know you you want your daughter to. I just uh, wanted Sam. She can speak to that because that worked for her. Well, well no. I, and I also want to yeah. say, you know, I want to make sure that Sam kind of has the last word here. <laughs> oh. uh, how are you, you know, what are you looking forward to? How do you feel right now? How are you looking, what are you looking forward to going ahead with uh, your freshman year at Penn State? Well, I'm just so beyond grateful to get back to me, to my life. I mean, I'm, I'm very different now. I have a very different lifestyle. I have changed my diet and really um, focused on overall wellness. But I'm just so excited, uh, looking forward to the future. Um, I mean, you don't you don't realize how much you have until until it's gone. And I was sitting at home. I'm um, very sick. I just I'm so excited to get back to my life and and accomplish my goals. Do you feel well right now? I do. You do? Yeah. I still have a little bit to go to get back to 100%, but it's I'll take it where I am. Carrie, we're out of time, but uh, information, if uh, we have, uh, with Project Lyme, if we have listeners who want to get more information. Sure. Uh, ProjectLyme.org is a great resource. Um, lots of prevention tips that are there. Um, you can also go to TickReport.com if you have a tick and you want to get it tested. That's a great thing to do. Um, CDC, you can always look there. ILADS.org is great as well. I want to thank all of you for being with us today. A lot of great information. And if you have a question or comment, send it to our website, W. WITF.org. Talk to you on tomorrow's program. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to research that improves health, reduces recovery times, and brings new treatments and therapies to our area before they are available elsewhere. More information is at pinnaclehealth.org.